Hey everyone, this is Cody Turner. This episode of the podcast is in some ways a continuation of the last episode. It's also centered around the philosophy of mind, and it also features two guests who are attending the consciousness conference with me that I'm currently at in Budapest, Hungary. The first guest is Sir Preston Lennon. That's Lennon as in John Lennon, the Beatle, as opposed to Vladimir Lenin, the radical revolutionary. I like to think that Preston combines the best aspects of both Lennons. He is soulful and charming and dreamy like John, but has radical tendencies and is fierce-minded like Vladimir. And Preston is currently a PhD student in philosophy at Ohio State University. The second guest stepping up to the podcast plate is Sir Cormac Duffy, a genius Irishman who will destroy you in the philosophical arena, annihilating you with logic and finishing you off with excruciating oratory abilities. In reality, he's a very nice guy. And Cormac is currently a master's student in philosophy at the University College Dublin. And here we talk about many different issues related to the philosophy of mind, including introspection, consciousness, the prospect of whether AIs can be conscious, the experiential character of thinking, and many other topics. I think there's something here for the whole family, even the crazy aunts that show up at Thanksgiving and are just kind of rude. I think they can get something out of this as well. So, without further ado, I present to you Preston Lennon and Cormac Duffy. Welcome to Tent Talks on the Shelter from the Storm Podcast Network, a place to talk the rain away with your host, Cody Turner. There's a storm coming, Mr. Wayne. See, I just wanted to start uh, talking about introspection. So this is something I've talked about with some people since I've been here. Um, just the importance of introspection and intuition, because philosophers rely on both of those to an extreme degree when philosophizing. So, you know, today we talked about different theories of introspection, and some people think that introspection kind of has, is privileged in an epistemic sense. So we can't, we might have infallible knowledge with respect to the things that are objects of introspection. Then the other side of the spectrum would be skepticism about introspection. We can't actually know the content of any of our mental states. So I was wondering where both of you fall with respect to what you think about introspection. Um, yeah, I guess I'm inclined to take the line that was developed in the most recent talk. Um, I, I'm skeptical of all claims of infallibility, probably, um, but I probably don't want to. Was it Ryle that Declan mentioned? Yes. As sort of instance of we just never have introspective access to our mental states. Um, and so, yeah, I guess, I, if anything, I'm sympathetic to the, this kind of, yeah, sometimes we can successfully uh, have you know, justified beliefs, if, if not knowledge, of our mental states and their contents. Um, it doesn't always uh, <laughs> go perfectly. And I like the Schwitzgable case where, uh, uh, you know, he's stuck doing the dishes and... and Okay, what uh, is that case? So it's like, no, no, it's, he's like, I think in a paper he describes this case where he's doing the dishes and his wife comes and says, hey, why are you angry? And he's like, 
you know, he introspects. I don't think I am angry. Um, but I think Sir Skibble says she can read his face better better and more reliably than he's able to introspect. It's like, right. I guess there's a moment of reflection. Wow, I guess, you know what, I am angry. And I think this is true all the time. I think um, <laughs> living with a partner for several years now, I think, is borne out. Uh, my <laughs> wife can read my moods and, and things. Uh, and I think that's what, if I'm not mistaken, that's what Ryle says about introspection, that we know our own minds in the same way that we know other people's minds. Yes, just via, would be, I see. Yeah. Via so, observable behavior than making inferences based on right. behavior. So maybe Ryle's claim is, this is a, uh, showing how little I know about the history of analytic philosophy, but yeah, uh, maybe the claim is there's, there's an, he's going to deny the asymmetry between knowledge of our own mental states and, mm. and knowledge of other mental states, or others' knowledge of our mental states. I think that's always a really interesting way of thinking about this. So sometimes when people talk about what we what happens when we introspect, the emphasis that people tend to put is on the uh, strength of that ability. But an important thing to emphasize is that what's unique about introspection is that it lets us know our own minds in a way that we can't know other people's. It really emphasizes the privacy of a lot of our experiences. So the way that I can know what's going on in my own inner life is very different in terms of method, maybe is the word I would use, mm. to how I would figure out what's going on in uh, Preston's inner life or in your inner life, Cody. And that's where um, sometimes the two things can get confused when you get into that kind of Rylian way of thinking where he might say that, well, the way that it can, our inner life seems to be read so easily by other people, and it's like, even if, you know, um, your partner or your close friend can read something out of your inner life better than you can, they're using a totally different technique method. or method to do that right. than mm -hmm. you would be when you're introspecting. Right. They're kind of always... Um, inferring from some mm -hmm. kind of evidence and some sort of knowledge of what you're usually like and then going from there whereas the idea in introspection is that you're able to directly in some way know what's going on in your inner life right where that that difference in method need not be accompanied by uh you know maybe maybe it is but it's it, mm. it, that need not by itself entail a difference in like Fallibility. Exactly. So you could have a very bad introspector um, married to an extremely emotionally intelligent psychologist. <laughs> um, and you would have total differences in, in the respective fallibility of their judgments, despite right. one arguably having um, less privileged, is a term that's often used for that, um, yeah. access to what's going on in, in the person's inner life. I, is it, I think it's Alex Byrne who says that it's the peculiar method by which we know our mental states mm. rather than the I think he says that to push back against the privileged word mm -hmm. um, yeah. So, yeah. yeah so one uh, we talked about this the other day but one consideration and actually just came up in the discussion but I think one consideration in favor of the fallibility thesis with respect to introspection is the idea that when we introspect we actually modify the state that we're trying to introspect and thereby change it so you can't actually get access to the state that you want to get access to because the act of introspecting itself changes the state. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about that? We briefly mentioned this the other day. I think there's... 
there's two ways of thinking about that and one I'm unsure about and one I'm very convinced of. So the one that I'm sure unsure about is that there's maybe some psychological mechanism that's a bit like uh, these measurement problems in physics where you can't actually make the measurement without in some way changing a certain property of what it is that's being measured. I find that is that I'm not really sure about, particularly with some basic things. So when I try to introspect on, you know, what the white of the table that we're currently sitting at, um, it's really it's an off-white or an eggshell, <laughs> to be fair. I'd say a light gray. But if, if I was to introspect on how that appears to me, I don't know if anything actually changes in that. That's the thesis I'm unsure about. The other way of thinking about this is that introspection by its nature is interpretive. Um, so you're given certain, you're having certain experiences in a very uh, naive way, non-reflective kind of way when you're just going about on your day-to-day life or when you're engrossed in other activities. Whereas introspection tends to involve stopping and looking inward in a way that, you know, you don't always do. You do quite often, I think, particularly when you're trying to figure things out about yourself. But that when you look in, the process of introspection involves taking what's going on and putting it into little boxes or categories or concepts mm. as a way of explaining that. And I think that's it's very likely that, particularly with something like emotions, the moment your introspection makes you want to put that into language or into the little ideas that you're stuck with, you lose something about the thing you're meant to be introspecting on. I would be very convinced of that thesis. Can I ask a question? Yeah. Uh, no, yeah, of course. <laughs> does, it, does, that, does that mean like introspection is always like maybe a half step behind then it's it's, it's uh yeah some people always say introspective is introspection is retrospective so you're uh, always looking like, yeah you're that's always the name gonna get that tattoo just say that's right <laughs> in the chest that's my next album title actually <laughs> um which is that you know you're uh kind of looking at the thing that just happened and you're always sort of trying to keep up uh because your stream of consciousness just rolls by you and whether you like it or not, the introspective activity that you engage in is part of that stream in some way. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's closer to your sense of self, or maybe you're more active in it than some of the passive contents of your stream of consciousness, but that's changing too moment to moment. Um, it's, it's, it's wrong to, I think, think about yourself as like, uh, and, and this is the kind of stuff that like someone like uh, Daniel Dennett when he sort of criticizes the, he's this very funny idea about the Cartesian theater, mm. which is in reference to Descartes, who thinks that we're sort of observers of what's going on in my mind. Right. And he imagines that he, he sort of makes fun of an idea of the brain where if you were to look inside of it, it's a smaller version of you sitting on a couch, looking at the screen of things going by. An inner uh, theater. Yeah, which is that that's not really a good account because you yourself are brought into this stream of experience in some way mm-hmm. and you're much more enmeshed in it than that you can't you can't just automatically separate from yourself it's very hard to do so what what's his account called it does he so isn't it the multiple drafts model is that right yeah which would i think be um if anyone it's very common in psychology i i try to use this um sort of as a metaphor for kind of explaining what Dan 
is Dennett is getting at when he talks about that, which is that I think a lot of people think in psychology where it's like, if you don't know why you did a particular action, when someone asks you, you might retroactively make up some description to justify it or whatever. Yeah. Whereas I think in the multiple drafts model, the idea would be that you have um, a lot of different sensory inputs and a lot of different experiences that are going on at once. And that in the process of reflecting or introspecting on what's going on, that interpretation takes these multiple drafts and ties them into one continuous experience. Uh, but only through your active interpretation of multiple different sort of complex inputs that are going on at once. Mm. Uh, that's my understanding of his, which is more drawn from the phenomenological side than his particular scientific justifications for that. Mm-hmm. He very much references the sort of the kind of neural activity that goes on to justify that. So I'm definitely missing some aspects of it, but that would be a rough sense of it if anyone wants to... Uh, well, one, one thing that you made me think of when you said that introspection is retroactive or retrospective, mm-hmm. um, isn't it also true to say that normal conscious experience prior to introspection is retroactive in the sense that it just takes time for the stimuli to hit our brain and for it to enter consciousness? So in some sense, we're, we're always never per- perceiving the present moment, but we're perceiving what had just occurred. Well, that's... Definitely true just on the fact that, you know, uh, light has to travel the few fractions of a second from yeah. any object that I look at. Um, once you kind of go past the eye into, you know, when that... Yeah, it, it's it's lightning quick by the standard of the time that we're used to normally when you try to get down to the, the speed at which some of this sensor information can be integrating your consciousness stream is really incredible but yeah yeah there there's it's not immediate yeah it's also uh i'm going to be the uh <laughs> stodgy dualist into it uh the, the stodgy philosopher of dualist intuitions it's also uh you know we can make a distinction between the physical functional stuff that's going on and you might think that consciousness just supervenes on, you know, the light coming in, hitting my retina, sending some stimulus through my brain's brain. Probably just one. Uh, uh, um, and if you think that consciousness is ultimately again uh, an emergent or identical with, with that stuff, then yeah, what what we're conscious of is going to be um, maybe. Maybe a, a split second, maybe by a very short amount of time, uh, behind in virtue of the uh, representational, like the, the information coming in. But then also, I don't know, you might think that uh, consciousness is separable from that stuff and um, it's presented to me immediately. Uh, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm depending on what you your what your theoretical views of consciousness are you might yeah well, want to resist that it's uh, behind in some sense I guess. well I wanted to talk about this too so maybe now's a good time uh, well first I guess can we define consciousness and then talk about the hard problem and I wanted to get both of your perspectives on the hard problem and what your metaphysical leanings <laughs> are towards well, consciousness no. <laughs> 
trusting you Let's first. Let's see if we're friends with Oh, man. So <laughs> you guys better not be dead at What is consciousness? Um, so, yeah, just a layman's definition of what we mean by consciousness. It's always, you know, it, it's hard to give a, like a clear, you know, necessary and sufficient conditions. Um, I feel like it's, it's... The way I like to do it is through just giving examples and sort of mm. ost- ostentative definitions. Um, Ostent of being pointing at it and saying that thing. Right, there you go. Right, there you go. Um, so, consciousness, you're in a conscious mental state when there's something it's like for you to be in that mental state. So, the cup before me, I don't think there's anything it's like to be that cup, unless this view called panpsychism is true. Um, but I'm not a, ra- I'm a panpsychist, but I'm not a radical panpsychist. Okay, good. I'm not going to go the cup's uh, conscious route. Okay, good. Those guys um, are crazy. But uh, there's something it's like to be Cody and Cormac and me and probably my cat back home. Mm-hmm. Um, when, these, when, we are, yeah, when we say that uh, beings like us are conscious, they have experiences. Um, right. Yeah. And so that's... So there's, that's kind of, yeah, there's an inner subjective perspective. And right, so I guess the hard problem is the idea that consciousness, unlike other natural phenomenon, resists a naturalistic explanation. It just, it seems fundamentally mysterious that these brain processes give rise to this conscious mysterious. And while we've discovered correlations between different brain activity and conscious percepts, right? When this area of the brain lights up, you have that conscious percept. We haven't discovered anything that has the character of an explanation. You know, with explaining why brain processes give rise to consciousness. And some philosophers will take this to suggest that consciousness is not a physical property, that it's that's something over and above uh, mere matter as we currently understand it. So, right. what's, yeah, so I guess what is your perspective on the hard problem? Are, are both of you physicalists? Do you lean towards some kind of dualism or maybe even panpsychism? Well, take it first, I suppose. I think when you're a philosopher, which is something that maybe, you know, those lucky uh, listeners who had never got involved in this cursed discipline uh, might not know, is that you often encounter some very uh, strange views. So say, for example, there's a position which is called illusionism, which would say that that there isn't really... Any there, the fact that you think that there's something that it's like to be you is a sort of a trick that your brain plays on itself is a phrase that's often used and then there's lots of kind of what philosophers call the limitless views about various different so which means that just get rid of it it's, it's not a thing we don't even need to talk about it about various aspects of mental life so then it would be on that certainly then it would be a methodological limitless so he doesn't think that you need to appeal to the kind of strong sense of consciousness that Preston just talked about in scientific research. Um, and he doesn't really make any metaphysical commitments. So Maybe an illusionist. He wrote, he wrote a paper saying that he thinks it's the best position we have at the moment. Yeah. Um, so when I talk to those sort of people, in comparison, I'm a total dualist because I think <laughs> I'm, I'm so committed to the very obvious reality of consciousness and of the mind and of you know beliefs and desires and intentional states and everything like that that I obviously think that the mental exists in some way where I get confused about the hard problem is then 
I wonder about how much, you know, access we have to what's really contained in the notion of the physical that makes it, you know, hard to conflict, makes it hard to uh, square with our understanding of the mind. Mm. And I often wonder about whether, I think I just, I, I, I don't know if I have any commitment to a particular position. There's some that I think have better explanatory power, but I don't really know because I find that sometimes when I even try to think about what's my position in philosophy of science about what matter is, mm. yeah, I don't know sometimes. Well, yeah, just quickly, that's why I really like Galen Strawson's kind of form of panpsychism because he thinks that we only think that there's an, this epistemic gap between consciousness and physical matter because we, we, we don't know enough about matter, you know, and so... He, think, he accuses a lot of physicalists as knowing more about matter than we actually do. Yes. And he yeah. thinks that ultimately the true nature of matter is going to involve some kind of consciousness, and that's mm. where the panpsychism comes in. Right. So it's our ignorance, not with respect to consciousness per se, but with respect to the nature of matter. Right. Which goes back to the physicist Arthur Eddington right. would have also kind of had an understanding that was similar to that, as would, as would Bertrand Russell. They would be probably the two big historical touch points. Uh, other than strange Germans from the 1800s, uh, they would be the, the more serious. Shout out to those guys. Yeah, shout out to those guys. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, I'm, I really like Brazilian modism, so Russell's my boy. Shout out to Russell. So I'd actually like to ask you something then, uh, Cody, that we Shoot. mentioned the other day. I mean, I'd love to get Preston's perspective on this as well. Yeah, I so, still want to give you a perspective too. So. Yeah, I, I talk a lot. It's no, like, God, This please. is why you don't have an Irish guest. We got time. We'll be here all night. <laughs> yeah. um, Get to the bottom of this stuff. So the way that we talk about how does the mind come out of the brain is called the mind-body problem, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. In some aspects of monism, there's what's called a neutral monism. Mm-hmm. So there's some thing that both matter and mind come out of. Mm-hmm. And I was wondering, is that your view? Because that, to me, seems like you just multiply the problem. So then you get a matter-monad problem and a mind-monad problem. Yeah, uh, right. So there are usually two forms of Brazilian monism. There's the panpsychism, then there's the panprotopsychism. And I don't know which one I prefer. Uh, I guess just to quickly define it. So the idea behind Brazilian monism is, so you can think of it as the conjunction of three claims. The first is that physics just describes the structure of the universe. So if you think about what an electron is, it's just defined in terms of dispositions and how it's related to other entities in a spatio-temporal framework. So physics doesn't say what the universe actually is in and itself, independent of that structure. Then the second claim is that there is some intrinsic nature of the universe. It's not just dispositions or structure all the way down. And some philosophers will want to claim that. They see nothing wrong with structuralism about physics. Mm. And then the third claim is that some form of consciousness or proto-consciousness, and that's where the neutral monism comes in, constitutes the intrinsic nature of the physical world that science describes. And I don't know, I actually lean towards pan-proto-psychism. For my undergraduate thesis, I wrote, I wrote it on a kind of pan-proto-psychism called pan-qualitism, which is advocated by philosopher Sam Coleman. And he wants to separate... Uh, phenomenal qualities from subjectivity 
Um, so he wants to say that phenomenal qualities constitute the intrinsic nature of the physical world, but subjectivity does not. And ultimately, he goes for this kind of pan-qualitism as a way to avoid the combination problem for panpsychism. So the idea is that, okay, if you're a panpsychist and you think that consciousness is infused into like the intrinsic nature of the universe, so or at the fundamental level of the universe, and then you additionally claim that the fundamental level is composed of small little quirks or something, then you're saying that all these little quirks are conscious? So then how do you get all those little consciousnesses to add up to macro consciousness? Mm, right. And Not the kind that we have. Right. The kind that we have. It's unified. Right. That's unified. And it's hard to see how that's the case because points of view, Coleman says, don't really combine. Right. My point of view is fundamentally separate from your point of view and that I can never truly get into your mind and access your consciousness. So he thinks that subjectivity or points of view, you treat those as one of the same thing, that's what uh, makes the combination problem so intractable. So he's going to separate subjectivity from phenomenal qualities, and he conceives it as a kind of neutral monism. And the problem with that is, is his view even coherent? Because then you get into questions kind of, if a tree falls and no one hears it, does it make a sound? Because he thinks that these, he wanted to take a robust conception with respect to these phenomenal qualities, uh, if that makes sense. So like redness, the percept of redness can exist and be instantiated in the absence of a subject or a point of view. So I find that that kind of neutral monism plausible. And I, I don't think it, it necessarily adds an entity in the way that you're suggesting. You know, you're saying like, okay, we have this physical stuff, we have this conscious stuff, you're going to explain both of those by positing this weird neutral thing? Isn't that just kind of uh, adding metaphysical entities unnecessarily? Mm -hmm. And I would say no, if you take the pan-qualitist conception, because we already know that phenomenal qualities exist. So we're not postulating something, the existence of which we're not acquainted with already. That's a really long-winded answer. So. No, that's super. That's super interesting. I, I, I should read the Coleman. Um, yeah, I'll, I'll send you some references. Please, please do. Um, I guess I'm, I'm, I'm just a right, off the cuff, like think out loud. What yeah. I think of is, I'm trying to. Can can one conceive of a phenomenal quality independent of of subjectivity? I guess I'm I'm. Mm. I'm doing some trying to go through some conceivability test here, um, and I don't know. I, I feel like some when I try to do that, I, I wonder if uh, is our phenomenal qualities somehow bound up with subjectivity, or, or is subjectivity subjectivity constitutive? Yeah, of phenomenal qualities. I don't know if anyone's. Well, it is. I would say my immediate response would be it is inconceivable, but. Thinking of a physical world is inconceivable too, right? You can't conceive of an inconceived object because if you try to formulate that conception, it necessarily takes place within the domain of your mind, right? Mm. So you can't occupy the view from nowhere. So, but yet we all believe that there is this physical world. We all believe in this view from nowhere. So in the same way, you might say you can't conceive of an unconceived quality, mm. but that doesn't mean that such qualities can't exist because... We're, I see. We can easily, we, we all believe in the existence of a physical world. Why not believe in those qualities as well, even though they're strictly inconceivable in the same way the physical world is? I see. But I don't know. Yeah, yeah. It does seem kind of strange. As the um, token Irish guest on the podcast, I have to go back to the uh, great uh, George Barclay, who. <laughs> right, yeah, uh, exactly. 
his account of experience would be uh, that uh, to be is to be perceived. So mm-hmm. even while he would have a totally idealist conception, he would still probably say that for something to exist, it has to be perceived. Mm-hmm. And I don't know what it would be. I, th- I imagine then if you want to go to something like pan-qualityism, you're also saying that to be a perceiver is probably reducible to just the qualities in some way. So our whole sense of being a unique consciousness or as an individual consciousness, that's probably going to end up being misguided in some way. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, I don't know what to say about that. I know I don't think Coleman wants to give a functionalist theory of subjectivity while re- while retaining or while maintaining that these phenomenal qualities are intrinsic. Mm. So that's the way that he wants to go with mm. it. But yeah, certainly if you're going to go Berkeley's route, then the whole idea of an unperceived quality seems to be incoherent. But okay, so I just wanted to get your perspective on the hard problem. Cool. Preston. Oh man, yeah. What well, first? I, I the first thought I have when I think about this is any solution seems insane <laughs> to me. Even yes. uh, 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 like the identity theory, uh, the brain mind. That's just the one of the most insane. I would say. Right. I don't yeah. Really dig into it. Right. Yeah. Right. Just like the 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 brain and the mind. At least the, the, the phenomenal yeah. part of the mind are are just identical. Actually, they're the same exact thing. Um, and so I think often people think, oh, substance dualism. The idea that uh, there's just souls, there's just phenomenal properties, and they are completely, they're a complete distinct metaphysical realm from the physical. Uh, they people think, oh, that's that's just something to laugh at. That's <laughs> that can't be right. Um, well, I, I, I have the same intuition about the mind-brain identity. Uh, yeah. Um, at least the, the phenomenal mind-brain identity. Um, and so, you know, I guess I would want to make a distinction between uh, type A physicalism and type B physicalism. Mm. This, this might be Chalmers. This might be his labels. Um, That's where I got it from. Yeah. yeah. To where type A physicalism represents, or, yeah, is, says there's a uh, uh, th- th- there's an ontological uh, identity between men- the mental and the physical. Right. Um, type B, I-, I guess, yeah, no, and there's no epistemic gap, whereas type B says that there's uh, an epistemic gap, but he goes it by, by, by the identity. Um, and so, yeah, I, I think, I, think uh, I have the intuition that they're just too different. And so I, I think that might come to an epistemic difference. Um, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so I, I think one way, one good way of framing the type A, type B distinction is in the context of the philosophical zombies. So a philosophical zombie is just a being that's physically, and I know you guys all know this, and this is just for people who are Yeah, listening. yeah, <laughs> I'm going to turn the lecture with you right now. Um, no, it's helpful. Yeah, is a philosophical zombie is a being that's physically and functionally identical to a human being, right? So, but that has no conscious experience, right? Kind of like a fleshy robot or something like that. And type A physicalists will just say that, well, that's inconceivable. Mm-hmm. You have a being that's physically and functionally identical to you. Consciousness comes along for the, for the ride. Mm-hmm. And then type B physicalists will say, no, it is conceivable 
Or in other words, there is an epistemic gap between consciousness and physical properties as we currently understand them, but it's just not ontologically possible. Ultimately, these two things, consciousness and the physical brain, they refer to the same thing in nature, even though they could conceivably come apart and it's hard to see how the brain can give rise to consciousness. Right. And that's why, see, that's why I, I, I just have such a hard time going with the Dennett camp because he's a type A physicalist, right? He wants to say that there is no epistemic gap between consciousness and the physical world. Um, so I want to shift now towards cognitive phenomenology, stuff that we've been uh, to discuss a few things related to that. So I guess first, Tell the listeners what is what is cognitive phenomenology, and either either you can take that. Yeah, so I mean, it's I like to think of it as the experience of thinking. So in the stream of consciousness, we have what we call what we might call sensations. I hear the sound of my own voice right now. I hear birds outside. When I go outside, I'm struck by the bluish character of the sky. The uh, spicy mouthfeel uh, mm. of my uh, pad thai that I had for lunch today. Mm. Um, look more though, there's not just sensations. There are, uh, our, our conscious, our stream of consciousness is punctuated by thoughts. Um, I might have a sudden thought that it's kind of hot in this room right now. I might have realized that I have a slight desire to have a beer after this. Um, and those seem conscious uh, in just the same way that uh, sensations are. And so I guess the idea is, at least at a first pass, that uh, cognitive phenomenology uh, says that we should include cognitive states um, in, in the realm of consciousness. Hmm. You know. And an important thing there is, and actually I'll go back to uh, Preston's very good definition of consciousness earlier on about the that it's something like to be a certain thing um, but we can also apply that in a way where when we talk about all of our different senses we can say there's something that's like to see something there's something that's like to smell something there's something that's like to touch something because they're things that are constituent parts of our conscious experience right. and a debate that we keep talking about this week is so when I'm thinking, I have some experiences that are like those experiences. When Preston, you know, raised the brilliant idea of getting a beer, uh, <laughs> I had you mad genius. <laughs> I had the uh, in my mind. I had a, a mental image of you know the the beautiful clearness of a Hungarian lager. Uh, I had some kind of tactile sensation of the cold glass Ooh. and uh, maybe some taste phenomenology as well. And I probably had something, and this is coming up a lot, like inner speech that said like, that would be awesome. The right. same way that I'm saying it out loud now, it was almost like a little auditory inner speech in my head. Right. And what we're trying to get at in this cognitive phenomenology debate is if you took away all of those little sensory things, even the bit that's like the inner speech, is there still something that it's like to think that you want a beer? Mm -hmm. Without any imagery or any inner speech or anything like that, is there something that's like to just have that thought? 
And that's opened up all sorts of discussions for us this week about can you have thoughts that are unsymbolized, that are not represented in language? Yeah. Can you have thoughts without any sensory phenomenology whatsoever? Loads. Mm-hmm. That's, that's really been a huge jumping off point for these discussions. And one reason, you know, again, if you're listening, you might be like, well, who cares? One reason why it's important is because there are philosophers who think that consciousness doesn't outstrip sensory consciousness, right? Like Jesse Prins thinks that it's all consciousness is generated by intermediate level perception mm-hmm. or whatnot. So if it's true that consciousness outstrips sensory consciousness mm. in the way that we're describing, it does have implications for many of the main theories of consciousness in the literature. But yes. where, where do you fall on the, there is irreducible cognitive phenomenology versus there's not? Are you on one side of that, or you just don't know? Yeah, I, I'm convinced. I'm, I'm convinced that there's... It's, I've come to believe after a lot of reading a few papers about this that it just... Yeah, maybe I'm not sure if I have it from introspective evidence, but it seems like it's the best explanatory framework for thinking about how I think <laughs> and why I realize that certain thoughts are true or false or anything like that. It, yeah, I think I'm on board. What about you, person? Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I'm in the bag for this stuff. I, uh, I definitely think that there is a real phenomenon here. I think there is something that exists called cognitive phenomenology, and it, it can't just be reduced to uh, the sensory medium through which it, it's expressed. Um, whether that means it itself is non-sensory, I think might be a further issue. Yeah. Um, um, but I definitely think, I guess, there's there's something called meaning experience um, mm. that I don't think is just reducible to the linguistic or imagistic or auditory medium through which it's expressed. Yeah. yeah. Um, to, to put it in those terms. Yeah, well, so I wanted to bring up that uh, more extreme view that you pointed to. So you could say that there is this irreducible cognitive phenomenology or conscious thought, but it still needs to be manifested on some sensory manifold. Sure. Or you could say that that conscious thought can exist completely independently of any sensory phenomenology. I'm personally interested in that as it relates to the possibility of disembodied AI consciousness. Mm. There are certain neuroscientists like Christoph Koch who thinks that um, there's a sensory hot zone that's necessary for consciousness. And if you, it, it seems to me that if you, if you think that there's this irreducible and phenomenally independent cognitive phenomenology, <clears throat> well, then that opens the door to the possibility that sophisticated uh, disembodied AIs, like a sophisticated version of Siri, could be conscious. And mm. you don't have to like consciously engineer some sensory abilities into the AI in order to get the consciousness. And so, yeah, I don't know. I was briefly talking about this with Tuku the other day. Um, you know, there's some, we're talking about it in relation to sensory deprivation tanks and how people go into those and they just experience conscious <laughs> thought and isolation. Dude, I gotta go, I gotta try one of those. Yeah, no, I wanted to. I haven't been in it. Um, no, thank you. <laughs> no, thank you. No, count me out. <laughs> but, okay, so that leads to, so I want to talk about some AI stuff. You guys are down? So, yeah. um, mm. <laughs> yeah, I'm not yeah. sure if I can say anything yeah. interesting, but I'm, I'm down. I'm not an expert. I'm fascinated and terrified about this stuff, but not an expert, so I'll contribute what I can. You seemed very knowledgeable the other day when we were talking about it. Or, I don't know. 
and that, at least within the context of that conversation. So I guess the first question is, do you think AI consciousness is possible? Mm-hmm. And this kind of gets into the computationalism. Or if you had to gun to the head, right, what would you say? I mean, you know, first I'm going to be that, that uh, again, stodgy philosopher and say, <laughs> what, well, in what sense of possible are we talking about? Um, is it, is it, <laughs> is it logical? Is it, is it conceivable that, uh, that AI could be phenomenally conscious? Yeah, sure. Um, in the actual world, could an AI be phenomenally conscious? My gut says no, and so maybe that commits me towards leaning to some sort of like, there's something special about the fact that we are biological creatures that Mm. at least makes it the case that in this world, in the actual world, uh, we have the right sort of constitution, uh, which enables us to be phenomenally conscious. Um, There's some secret consciousness sauce in carbon substrate or something like that. That's right. No, it's... Yeah, I mean, no, I'm not. No, sorry, no, I'm not trying to yeah, like caricature that view. Maybe right. that's right. Yeah, I oh, think. Um, what yeah. is it they used to be called? They used to be called carbon chauvinists. People <laughs> have this view. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. Is it that's John Sterling? See, I'm, mm. I'm already uh, the, the the AI listeners now have already are, are, are swearing at me in their cars where they're listening. In their self driving cars. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Yeah. <laughs> um. What do you think? Maybe it would be helpful. Could, could one of you articulate John Searle's Chinese room thought experiment? Could you do that? Because I think that's, that's relevant to what we're talking about here, right? Yes, it is. Um, so, John Searle came up with this idea that he said was a thought experiment arguing against a thesis that he was describing a strong artificial intelligence. That was very much in response, not so much to some philosophers, but to some kind of computer scientists who were um, really overselling the the current success of artificial intelligence. This is in the late 1970s, early 1980s, around that period. I think Herbert Simon was one of the most prominent people he was responding to. And they would have basically argued that in virtue of the functional structure or the syntactic structure of the operations that a um, computer is uh, doing at a particular time, the kind of processing that goes on or whatever, that in virtue of that being correctly arranged, that that computer can have understanding. I think understanding is the main word that comes up again and again for Mm. this paper. So he just tries to say, I'm going to come up with a counterexample which is a computer made of something different and then we're going to see if we think it would be conscious and so let's talk about how he does that so he imagines a room that has a so i'm a good example i don't speak the chinese language i'm in this room and what i have access to are all of these books that have rules that i can follow in order to create sentences of chinese so there's someone on the other side of that room who can write a sentence of Chinese on a piece of paper, pass through a window into me, and so they don't know if there's a person who understands Chinese in that room, or a robot, or what. And then what I do is I use the books to follow the rules that come up with the right response. And then I write that out, and I hand that out to the person. And they say, oh, this person is able to, well, not this person, sorry, this room is able to give me an appropriate response. 
the room or the person in it, or they don't really know what it is, must understand Chinese. Right. And then the hit point is that even though all of the functional rules are followed the same way they would be in a computer program, I don't understand Chinese. I don't have any actual semantics in sense of meaning when it comes to what I'm writing. And he thinks that that's an example that is better than just thinking about computers because I think sometimes he thinks when you see a computer in a little box and it's all a little unified thing and it's got silicone and it's got little lights going off, mm-hmm. then I think, oh, that's like a brain. Mm-hmm. But when you think of a computer in the abstract, which is essentially a set of functional relations, right. when you put it into a different medium, so like paper and books and stuff like that, it suddenly becomes obvious to you. It's just like, no, that, that can't have understanding. That system of input, that system which is ultimately just input outputs can never... Yes generate understanding just the appearance of understanding yes. but ultimately person on the inside of the room doesn't mm-hmm. understand chinese and this is i guess maybe it might be helpful just to define what like the whole computationalist project of the mind in a little more detail because that that's what this is mitigating against right the idea that the mind is just like a computer and mm-hmm. well, i guess you already kind of described it um so well, yeah, so I, then there are responses to the Chinese room. Some people will say, so what are some, there's like the whole system's response. So there's the whole system's response, which is to say that, no, 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 the, the person, me in the room, I'm just a particular unit of that functional system. So even though I don't understand Chinese, the whole room understands Chinese. So the whole mm-hmm. system understands Chinese, mm-hmm. which... I don't know, rooms don't seem to understand things to me, but yeah, some people seem happy with that. Uh, some people give a reply that's actually close to some of the stuff that we were talk- that you were talking about there about sensory input. Oh, I think yeah. they give what I think uh, the robot <clears throat> reply, which is possibly that you need to have causal relation to your environment as well. Mm. So you would need to have particular kind of ways of taking in input and that that might be sufficient for understanding. Yeah, another related thought experiment against that functionalist picture would be uh, Ned Block's Chinese Nation thought experiment. Have you heard mm-hmm. of that? Yeah. Where the idea is like, okay, if you're saying functionalism, functional structure is sufficient for consciousness, we can imagine that at a more macro scale where every member of China plays the same role that some part of your brain plays, right? Mm-hmm. So then if functionalism is true, and let's just stipulate by definition that that the Chinese nation implements the structure of the brain, or it's completely identical to the structure of the brain. Yeah. Functionalism would imply that the entire nation of China is in some sense conscious, but that on its face seems absurd. So therefore, functionalism must be false. Mm. But it's interesting because I've read some recent articles lately about group agency and group consciousness. So you might just bite the bullet and say, eh, maybe the whole nation of China is, is conscious. I just wanted to loop back... Let's loop back mm. uh, and talk about some of the unpremeditated self-expression stuff. So now going back to the kind of experiential thinking stuff for a second. Um, I thought it was really interesting what Charles was talking about when he was saying, uh, does thinking... Charles Seward, Charles Rice College. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Professor Charles Seward, uh, Dr. Charles Seward. Major dude, called. Charles Seward. Yeah, Major he's a big, big player in the consciousness literature. Um, so he was talking about how thoughts unfold throughout time. And I th- this is something that I've always wondered, kind of independently. Do you just have 
sometimes I think I have a thought and it happens to me all at once and then I dress that thought up, so to speak, by verbalizing it. But the thought was already there and I'm just putting words to what was already there. But he was saying that actually, no, in verbalizing it, whether via inner speech or if you're articulating it, you're actually having the thought. It's being born as you're verbalizing it. So I was, I was wondering what you all thought about that presentation, generally speaking. Yeah, I guess I... So I think he's saying... I don't think he's saying that all instances of unverbalized or unsymbolized mm-hmm. thinking... Um, I, I think these things... There are those instances, like I can suddenly realize in a flash that I locked myself out of my apartment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, um, that hits a little close to home. Um, and, yeah, uh, and, but then I think he does want to say that sometimes um, thoughts thoughts are sort of temporal, um, temporally extended, and you, got, you haven't had the complete thought until you've, what, thought it all out uh, in, what when you're like looking for the word? Uh, sorry, maybe I'm maybe I'm forgetting the phenomenon exactly. Tip of the tongue? Is there? No, I think you're thinking something different. Well, I guess I'm. I, Seward had a particular phenomenon he was trying to say, and that was you haven't had the entire th- or you, you have the thought, and then you're trying to to finish it as you but verbalize it or as you say it to yourself. I forget what exactly <laughs> Seward's claim was in that paper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I do I think, you know, to the first question, yeah, I think I, I, I think I often do have uh, th- conscious thoughts that aren't dressed up, like you said. Um, that you know, sometimes they're accompanied by some mental imagery. So if I have the sudden flash, I, I lock myself out of my apartment. That might be accompanied by feelings of panic, and maybe that's some bodily phenomenology. My heart rate <laughs> probably goes up. Um, might have like an image of my door mm-hmm. at home, um, but it seems like those those are are compulsory. I don't. I didn't. I had the thought, and those things might have been accompanied, but but they weren't constitutive of the thought. They did. They weren't what the thought. They didn't compose the thought. Mm-hmm. Um, see, I, I think I, I'm. I'm Attracted to the idea, to the existence of, uh, yeah, un- uncivilized thought. Um, yeah. And and but but, sorry. Yeah, there was this other phenomenon that Charles was uh, pointing at in uh, in defending cognitive phenomenology about uh, the temporality of thought. And so I, I guess I didn't uh, express that very well. I don't know. If oh no. So we, we don't need to articulate yeah. this like precise thesis or whatever. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> but for me, like. If the thought does arrive all at once, that almost, I want to say that that thesis is true because it almost justifies me in doing less mental effort (laughs) or exerting less mental energy because I'm like, okay, I don't need to verbalize it. I already got it. Mm -hmm. Or else I need to verbalize it Mm -hmm. or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, It's interesting in that it ties back to some of the early conversation we had about introspection, which is introspection. If you're doing introspection in order to report that result to another person, that's, if you buy into this kind of approach we're talking about now, then you have to do this necessary verbalization to do that. If I have a thought that's unsymbolized, again, thoughts are private, I can't point at my, the thing in my head and get the other person to know what I'm talking about. 
I to in some way convey it in some symbolized way. Right. Right. Yeah, so then unsymbolized thought would just be thought that occurs without any inner speech or sensory mm-hmm. imagery or something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so yeah, I was wondering if you guys could just like both briefly talk about what you're planning on doing for your dissertations or interested in defending. Um, maybe we could start with you, Preston. Yeah, so I am uh, just finish, finishing up my uh, prospectus for mm. my dissertation, so I should have things to say about this. Um, I am defending cognitive phenom- the existence of cognitive phenomenology. Um, and in particular, I am uh, arguing that cognitive phenomenology in particular is needed to uh, deliver determinacy of beliefs, so, uh, or belief content, I should say. Um, and so uh, just by appealing to sensory phenomenology, if, so I guess a background, I, I want to defend a kind of functionalism about uh, belief content. Um, yeah. But it's been, a, it's been thought that one way you can solve determinacy worries, so like is my thought about uh, flies, is it about the fly or is it about like the small black buzzing thing or is it about food? So that's right, this, it's, it's better if it's from a frog's perspective than me. I, I, <laughs> I don't eat flies. Um, um, hey, his own, man. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Um, it's been thought that we can appeal to phenomenal consciousness and its intentionality, which is has determinacy built in. Define intentionality. Intentionality would be, well, that's another, you know, you could spend about a millennia on that, but uh, it's, I take it, it's what my thoughts are about. It's the content of my thoughts. It's, if you like, what my thoughts represent, what mm-hmm. my belief is about, what my desires are about. My belief that the sky is blue is about the sky being blue. My desire for a beer after this is indeed about <laughs> a beer after this. Um, and so, Trying to make that about a determinate particular thing is a hard problem. Um, some folks at this conference have said, hey, we can appeal to phenomenology uh, and phenomenal conscious, consciousness with its determinate uh, content built in to shore up these determinacy worries. And I'm going to say that cognitive phenomenology in particular uh, is needed to secure determinacy for belief content. Yeah, so, I'm wondering if yeah. can, can you briefly define the natural the naturalistic approaches to intentionality yeah. and the problem of content determinacy that they face. I feel like that might that juxtaposition might put your project into a clearer light. Definitely, definitely. So, in the battle days, there was uh, what's sometimes called a naturalistic externalist research program. That's I think Kriegel's name for it. That's his label. And that is, we can um, secure belief content by either appealing to, or sorry, belief or desire content, um, uh, by appealing to um, either, I guess, the function, the function, like, by appealing to functions. So either through uh, belief or desire's functional role or through a sort of like teleological function of what uh, the belief tracks or represents in the environment. And the thought is that both of those ways of construing, uh, of determining belief is actually not going to get determinate content. Um, it's going to be speed massively, radically indeterminate what, my, what uh, 
what the content of my belief is. Um, mm. Recently, it's been thought, though, that we can appeal to this other aspect of the mind, the phenomenal side of the mind. And it looks like when I'm having an experience of phenomenal red, there's no indeterminacy what that's about. That's just about this particular shade of red. Um, um, my thought uh, that this is a cup is just about this particular cup. Um, um, and so the thought is we can appeal to this other aspect of the mind, the phenomenal side of the mind, um, and sort of either add it to the functional story that uh, tried to secure determinacy on its own, um, or maybe we can tell, we can like ground the functional stuff uh, in, in, in consciousness, so that consciousness is at like the base. Um, um, you could tell some story about how they're related, but the point is consciousness has to come in in some part of the picture to deliver determinacy. Um, and so that's sort of the big picture thing I'm thinking about. And in particular, I'm interested in cognitive phenomenology's role in uh, securing some of the more abstract contents um, of our beliefs. Yeah. So yeah, stay tuned. Uh, <laughs> dropping uh, circa June tw 2022. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what about you, Preston? What's your uh, basic plan for your dissertation? Or what are you interested yeah. in? Or sorry, I said Preston. I've been doing really bad with names hey, today. Right? It's, it's sorry, been a long getting day. justice to it's you earlier, stealing your question, <laughs> and now this. It's been a long day. This is bad. Well, past it yeah um so yeah i'm working on my master's thesis at the moment um i am looking at a quite a broad question i suppose which is um this is the way that i always like to set it up which is that a lot of people i'm interested in questions about the scientific study of consciousness and a lot of people say that what the scientific study of consciousness wants is seeking to do this is actually something that david chalmers says is to integrate two different classes of data. So he would say that's the data of like the third person perspective about the brain. So the data you get from neuroscience, from physics, from any study of the material world that you can apply to our own bodies. And then he says that there's a first person data, which is our consciousness and how it appears to us and everything like that. And the problem for consciousness science is how do you connect those two things? My concern is to say, what is the nature of that first person data? Is it something where if you want to study someone's particular consciousness, can you just get them to sit down in a lab chair with a bunch of wires strapped to their head and just ask them what's going on in your head right now? And right. then it comes out like a ticker tape and it's just accurate readings of everything that's going on. And the way that I'm trying to basically not not an original critique of that, but probably trying to synthesize a few different discussions that go on around this process. I'm basically trying to look at what are the full set of assumptions that that kind of uh, epistemology around first-person data need. So I'm looking at what kind of ontological commitments do they have around what the mind is and what phenomenal consciousness is. I'm wondering what kind of epistemological commitments they have in terms of how do we introspect what justifies the judgments in our introspection how good are we at it yeah. i'm looking at some of the issues about language and reference so when i give a verbal report 
of what's going on in my phenomenal consciousness? How are how is it determined that, that the content of that sentence refers to the specific thing that happened in my head, so to speak? And then lastly, just about the scientific opera, uh, operationalization of that data. So how do you actually formalize and classify and use that to try and generate you know, information in consciousness studies? Yeah, I'm always baffled by people who just completely disregard first-person approaches to consciousness and think that there's that only third-person approaches will do. I mean, so you're definitely, I would guess, on the side that, yeah, there is a role for first-person explorations of consciousness just based on everything we said regarding cognitive yeah, introspection. Yeah, I think that it's pretty good in determining what are the kind of things that we should study. So usually you identify a particular phenomena from your kind of first-person perspective that can then be really useful in empirical research. So examples like we have very good empirical research on an issue like attention because we have a certain phenomenology of what it's like to focus on things and to lose focus and for things to go in and out. And then that can help us set up particular uh, things that we think we can study and try to find the mechanisms underlying them. Where I'm more uncertain is the idea that phenomenology can get us a big series of data points the way that something like brain scans can. I'm not sure if we can do that because I'm not sure if the experimental design that takes place in those can be actually done without biasing the subject in ways that they make particular judgments about their experience at that time. Yeah, yeah I was reading something recently that you just reminded me of, it's called, I think, neurophenomenology, where they're putting like expert meditators mm -hmm. and scanning their brains as they're in these deep states of meditation. And that is part of, part of the reason that I was interested in the whole introspection thing, because expert monk meditators are so-called expert mm -hmm. introspectors. So should we believe their first person testimonial reports are tracking the true nature of consciousness more than the average person and does it make sense to bring them into the lab and see what parts of their brain are lighting up as they're introspecting yeah well they're great examples because they, there's particular differences in the, some of the physical structures of you know monks who devoted long lives to their brain to meditation because the particular activities that you would engage in have a huge effect on the wiring that goes on in your brain and the way that neuroplasticity works and stuff like that. So they're great for comparing to, you know, uh, average Joes like me and, her, and my very erratic. Uh, <laughs> I just do the 10 minutes of meditation on the app. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah <laughs> so I'm also an average yeah. <laughs> Neuro Neurophenomenology is a, is a big point of contention in the work that I'm doing. And really that's a, a the people who do great work on that, Sean Gallagher, uh, Dan Sahavi, they're mm. both building on the legacy of a uh, Varela who wrote some of the earliest, I think he came up with the word neurophenomenology, mm. um, who was a, a neuroscientist who got very interested in Husserl and saw a huge connection between the two. And But it's not the main... It's not the main tradition within neuroscientists of consciousness. Mm. Mm -hmm. Another thing that you mentioned, that, and we can go get beer soon, I don't want to hold you for too long. Again, <laughs> yeah, tell me your shadow. Yeah, it's all good. Um, you mentioned the relationship between attention and consciousness, 
And I was wondering what, this is something that I've been thinking about recently. Do you think, Tuke and I were talking about this the other day, Ned Block has this concept of phenomenological overflow where phenomenology can kind of outstrip attention. Mm-hmm. Do you buy into that, that idea? Um, what do you think the relationship is? And this is for either one of you. What do you think the relationship is between attention and consciousness? Do you have any, any sense as to what the relationship might be? That's a good question. Um, I guess a, in one sense, uh, this gets back to the like discussion of introspection earlier. You might think that phenomenal character just is, uh, or at least our phenomenally conscious mental states just are those states that we're sort of directly aware of, or that maybe we're able to attend to. Um, they're just laid bare before us, um, and then. I don't know, I, I hear descriptions of cases where, you know, someone points out to me that there, there's been a fan running this entire time mm-hmm. in, the, in sort of my phenomenal yeah. periphery. And was that part of my conscious experience? Uh, I, and I just wasn't attending to it? I, I don't know what to say. Uh, yeah. I mean, if you're listening to this, here's a question. Before I say what I'm about to say, are you aware of the position of your knee at the moment? Right. In some sense, you obviously are. The listener's just been fixated on their knee the entire podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Joke's on you, man. Yeah. You're asking the wrong guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, <it's all> right. <laughs> um, um, but yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I, I think I have similar intuitions to Preston. It, yeah. it, it, it seems very confusing that that is the case but the examples just seem very clear right and they yeah. just seem to really um i think attention is closer to what block calls the kind of cognitive accessibility or um a consciousness yeah, accessibility, access, consci- access consciousness yeah. where it's like maybe something's phenomenologically presented to you but it's not available for you to reason with and using your judgments report. and act upon or report or things like that mm-hmm. That seems where attention fits in there. Attention determines what gets into that side of it from the phenomenal side of mm-hmm. it, which is another reason that we might think that introspection is going to be something we're not very good at. Devil. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I don't know what the answer is either. My sense would be that there still is some what it's likeness of mm-hmm. the fan in the peripheral mm-hmm. revision, mm-hmm. even if the spotlight of focus isn't directed upon it. Yeah. But I'm not really sure. But that's what that's covered by the phenomenological overflow though. As in the what its likeness is still taken to be there. Mm. Just that it's not something you can grasp in the same way or something that you necessarily grasp. Right. Um anyone's interested in this change blindness experiences of the famous case where that Ned Block uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, Ned Block, if you're listening, come on the podcast. Uh, <laughs> Ned Block, go on, go on, uh, TED Talks. Yeah. <laughs> You'll come through. Publicity, man. Roll, yeah. roll up, though. <laughs> roll up. Wait, so what, what is, just quickly, what is change blindness? So change blindness is where you're looking at, say, a photo or a video scene or something like that and there's something that changes very quickly or very suddenly and often very drastically but you don't notice there being any difference um, Mm -hmm. to do so uh, Block often puts up these sets of pairs of photos where they're exactly the same but one element has been removed and 
Okay. You will ask people, are you looking at the same photo that you were a second ago? And some people say, yeah, some people say, no, there's a particular part that changed. And then the question is, then are these people, that's change blindness. Mm -hmm. So it's where you're not noticing some difference in the picture. So say it might be a picture of, I believe he uses one that's like a scene of a house with some trees in the background. And when you show the picture again, a second later, after a short flash, there's several branches removed or some part has changed mm -hmm. in color or whatever. And so his way of explaining that would be that the change is the phenomena that overflows the access consciousness. Okay. That phenomenological overflow. Yeah. Okay. All right. Anything else that you want to plug? Or should we go get a beer? No, yeah, this is fun. This has been great. Yeah, yeah. thanks so much. Don't, don't take me seriously describing any of uh, Dan Dennett's theories. <laughs> go, uh, go, go read Consciousness Explained. Uh, even if you disagree with him, it's a great experience. You're wrong, Dennett! <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's, uh, he's, of all the people I've asked to disagree with, he's the one I respect the most. So, yeah. shout out Dan Dennett. Come on, podcast. <laughs> yeah, he'll come through. All right, thanks, guys. Appreciate thanks. it. Thanks. Thanks.